This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio. Welcome to Author Voices on Air, and I'm your host, Rick Bell. Our next book is the story of the author's experiences. She describes herself as a singer who can no longer sing. Whilst travelling home to get ready to perform as a singer at a variety show at a leading club in Sydney, Australia, the author was involved in a horrific car accident which left her in a coma for over four months. With the support and encouragement of her late husband, who sadly passed away recently, she decided to write a book about her life and about the changes that her accident has brought. Her new book, My Corner of the Sky, takes the reader on a journey through the author's glittering career as a club and television entertainer, her scary road trip to Darwin, and her performance at the Sydney Opera House, all of which were cut short by the tragedy of what happened. And it gives me great pleasure to welcome to the show the author, Kerry Dyer-Keen. Welcome to the show, Kerry, and thank you for joining me. Now, can I first of all begin by offering our sincere condolences for the recent passing of your late husband, who I know was a great inspiration to you and no doubt will be very proud of everything that you go on to achieve. Thank you very much. I'm sure he would be, yes. Now, your book is unquestionably an inspiration, as you yourself are, as a writer, a former singer and performer. Can I ask, first of all, what was the major motivation and inspiration behind your decision to write a book? The major inspiration behind writing the book goes back to what my husband said to me a long time ago. You should write it all down because you have to you remember things and you may forget. And I sort of thought, I, I'll never forget this. But I have quite, quite plainly forgotten some things. So they're all written down in the book now they're there forever. Obviously something you want to share with the readers. But talking about the readers, when you were writing the book, you must have had a particular audience or a particular readership in mind. Who would you say that you wrote the book for and why? I wrote it for anyone that needed a bit of encouragement and a bit of help to make them feel determined to overcome the difficulties that they faced. Now that brings me to my next question. It's often said that every book, whether it be fact, fiction or fable, has a message or a lesson to be learned by the reader. What would you say is the one thing that you want the readers of your book to learn or to take away from your book? The the one thing that I would really like if you want to learn from the book or whatever, is that there's no point in giving up. You must keep trying, you must work, 
at every aspect of living. Otherwise, what is the point of being alive? Well, having read the book, um, I can certainly say you are proof of that in yourself without giving too much away. Tell me a little more about some of the, the life's memories that you share in this book with the readers and something about the scenes and the characters in the book. Well, the person that was me in those, in those days was a bit of a scan, a bit strange. <laughs> but I've got involved with a lot of strange things. There's a lot of semi-sexual connotations and some other things that are not semi-sexual at all. There's also the determination and the uh, working hard at correcting my walking and my talking. I still don't talk really well, but it was making me work really hard in the in the hospital to sort of recover my abilities to do just the basic things. I missed not being able to do the more elite things, and I suddenly couldn't even do the basic things. Now, talking about what you've been through in yourself and the the horrific accident that you were involved in and your recovery from there, what would you say is the one thing that has been the strength for you and has helped you to the stage of recovery that you're at at present? It's going to sound rather strange, but I believe, I think I wrote about it in the book, I believe I had an out-of-body experience when I was unconscious. And having not been allowed to go into the gate, go through the gates, I was sent back to Earth again. So I think that he has a definite had a definite purpose for sending me back. Now I had my baby girl, my daughter, which was the first reason for being saved and sent back. And the second reason for being saved was for giving my darling husband the help and support he needed when he had the Alzheimer's. And so we've, I've sort of, how would you say it? I've looked after him and in the same way that he looked after me after the accident and helped me learn to walk and talk again, I helped him learn to live again with, with the Alzheimer's. And although he did not do what one would call living, he was alive, and he sort of was comfortable. So that's well, you've, the... you've certainly been what I could describe as a, a tower of strength for each other. Now, the book, I think it would be fair to describe as the memoirs, if you like. Yes. But how would you say, that aside, how would you say this book differs from other similar type books and um, what would you say sets it apart? Well, that's a, that's a rather strange question because obviously I would find my story more important than anybody else's story. But I think it's probably not any different to a lot of other things that encourage people. But it is 
honest and forthright, and it is really written in a way that means that you're sitting there talking to me. And the people have often commented that it was like sitting in a bedroom or a lounge room talking one-to-one with me and working through it. It was very personal. So from that point of view, it's different. That certainly gives the, the listeners an insight into why they should want to pick up this book and read your story. Now, talking about your story, where does the book begin? Where does the story begin? Does it take you back to your early life or is it the after the accident? Part, the first part of the book is the aftermath of the accident in the hospital when I was coming out of the coma. The second part goes back to when I was a child. Childhood goes through all my youthful irascibilities in Greenacre where I grew up. And it's all sort of just normal sort of chit-chat about the, the things that kids do at school, at school and in the neighbourhood. It goes into my show business days and then into the time when I, because I was not exactly the best behaved person in those days, and I was sort of having a downtime, and I I just broken up with my first fiance, and I decided I wanted to change. So I hitched a ride with a fellow to Darwin, which is where I worked quite a lot, and we drove all the way to Darwin. But I found out that that guy that I'd run off with was also a gangster. And he had a gun in the car. When I said I wanted to leave, he made very plain that I wasn't going anywhere. But eventually I had him arrested. I walked away out to get away from it, went to Darwin. And then after Darwin, I came back to Sydney and I met my husband again and we got married, so then there's a chapter about the wedding and about how I had the baby and all those sorts of things. So it's really just basically a memoir. But some people say I've had an interesting life. Well, certainly um, there's no question that your life has been interesting and full of colourful characters. Now, moving on to writing the book itself, what for you did you find most challenging about writing the book. And obviously, writing in itself is bound to bring out rewards. Tell me some something about that side of it as well. It was a bit strange in that when I wrote it, I didn't sort of follow all the normal routines, normal routines of writing a book. I just wrote it down as I thought it, as it came out. And so that's why some of the book is a bit wibbly wobbly and bounces back and forward. And I sort of wasn't really bothered about tidying it up to be written, to be published with me, because it was never meant for that in the first place. So when I was writing, I wasn't sure whether I had said something or not. And so quite often I would repeat myself. But you find that it sort of all gets around to telling you the story as it happened. Now that brings me... 
Yeah. To my next question, as a first-time writer, and we discussed this when we were speaking off air earlier, has writing this book given you the inspiration to want to write another book or maybe even further books? Now that my husband's died, I'm thinking of writing, a, and because Alzheimer's is such a hot topic, I'm thinking of writing a a book that involves telling how one copes with Alzheimer's and how one copes with the problems that arise from Alzheimer's. Because as you say, someone with Alzheimer's is still very much a person, still very much a human being with thoughts and feelings and so on. And I certainly think that that would be a good read and also would be helpful for other people who are What's looking that? after someone with with Alzheimer's. Now, in closing... Is there anything that you would like to add that we maybe have not covered yet during this interview about your book? The book is interesting and it's a really good read and it's a lot of uh, inspirational things in it. So for anyone that wants to be inspired, that's what the book is great. Thank you, Kerry. My Car Not of the Sky is published by iUniverse and is available direct from the publishers at iUniverse.com and all good bookstockers. Once again, many thanks to my special guest today, the author and writer Kerry Dyer-Keen for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. This is Rick Bell for Torganet Radio. Thank you for listening. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors, all quilters just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. Greetings for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled Life as I Lived It, Small Town Country Living. And my author, who joins me from somewhere in the Northeast, I think near Cincinnati, Ohio, is author Richard W. Block. Colonel Block, welcome to the program, sir. Well, thank you. This Glad is to be here. this is an interesting concept. I know a lot of people have that nostalgic look back at not only their lives but uh, maybe a wish for Mayberry somewhere in their world. Is that what this book is about? Is it about your life only, or is it an observation from from your life as a colonel and other things that you've done in life? Well, it's uh, all about growing up in uh, a small town from the 1950s until now, and uh, all the different adventures and things can relate to anyone's 
life as they grew up, no matter where they live. This is a 400, 422 pages. That's a lot of uh, reminiscing or, or, or looking back. Did you uh, keep notes as you were going through life, or are these just uh, vivid memories that you were able to recall? Uh, they're memories that I was able to recall. I have a photographic memory, and so I would just write what I could visualize. It uh, makes it easier that way, you know, when I think about when I did something and I could see myself doing it, and I just write down what uh, what happened and where it was and so forth. Are all of the all the adventures that are mentioned in your book are are, are there are there some that are poignant? Uh, are there some that are humorous? How would you describe the contents? Well, they're all true stories. Uh, there is humor in there, lots of humor. There is history in there, and there are things to be learned. A lot of common sense. I designed this book for uh, people who do not have time to read. There are 122 short stories in this book that cover 416 pages. They average about three to three and a half pages per story. So you can open my book to any title in there that uh, sparks your interest and simply read a whole story in uh, oh, four or five minutes and you've got the gist of one whole story rather than start at the beginning of a book like you commonly would a novel and have to read the whole book just to get the gist of one story you can get the gist of one story in just four or five minutes and there's 121 stories left for you to read Phenomenal. Your first story deals with animals you have encountered, and you talk about Michigan and possums and other unique creatures. Is that something from the way, way back in your childhood memory? No, not really. <laughs> I still do a lot of hunting and spend a lot of time in the outdoors. Uh, as a matter of fact, I also teach uh, hunter safety for the Department of Wildlife here in uh, Ohio. And a lot of these stories I use, especially the animal stories, during a class to help the students remember particular things of interest so that they do well on the tests. And if they have any questions, they can always ask, and I'll say, well, you remember the story about this or that? And they'll say, oh, yes. I said, well, now answer the question. It's just that simple. And I thought, gee, uh, maybe I should start writing some of these stories down um, because, you know, I do enjoy telling them. And... Uh, so that's what I did, basically, was write down a lot of stories. I uh, still uh, spend a lot of time with uh, the possums and the raccoons and everything else. I usually raise <laughs> several each year here and teach them all kinds of things. And then the good thing about having a wild animal as a more or less a pet or a family member, really, is that when the fall comes, it's like raising a child. They're pretty much full-grown, and, and it's time for them to go their own way, just mm. like uh, children going off to college. And so they go their own way, and you're not stuck with them for 15 years wow. like you would be a dog or a cat. I hear you. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> One of my fondest memories as a child was uh, raising a raccoon. My wife still thinks they're uh, despicable animals and uh, and uh, get into stuff too much. But I, I still have fond memories of, of raccoons and, and uh, how they are such unique animals. Well, they are. They're a very hyper animal, and they yeah. just don't sit still. <laughs> right. That's just the way they are. Unlike a possum, which you can put a possum down, and he'll sit there forever until you pick him back up, you know. Hmm. 
You 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 have titled this "Life as I Have Lived It" and "Small Town Country Living." Has all of your your living, all of your your time been spent in smaller communities, or uh, you're near Cincinnati? That's a fairly large town. Uh, describe what small town living is in your comments or in your stories. Well, that's kind of like Huckleberry Finn, I guess. Uh, I grew up along the Ohio River in a small town uh, in Aurora, Indiana. Hmm. And I lived right on the hill above the river, and below me was the ferry landing that went back and forth between Aurora and the state of Kentucky. And uh, I could lay in bed of a morning, and I could listen to the different boats out on the river, Hmm. and I could tell without even looking whether it was foggy or whether the boats are passing each other or whether they're going from side to side, things like that. That just uh, every morning when you get up and you, you, you go into town or whatever and or head up for your job, you see the river there. And I spent a lot of time uh, in my younger years as a as a professional trapper and spent a lot of time on that water. And even in the summertime, spent a lot of time on that water. But uh, it's uh, about a lot of country folk, the way the people live. And, you know, we, we never had a dial telephone until 1966. Wow. Uh, we never had indoor plumbing until... Uh, <laughs> I put it in myself when I got out of high school. <laughs> and that's, you know, you think, oh, my God, it's more like back in the hills of Kentucky or Tennessee. But uh, it was just a way of life, uh, almost like pioneers, you know. Just simple we living. Had a, simple. had a little heater there in the house, a fuel oil heater in the living room, and we had a three-story house. And, of course, you had registers in the floor, which is just a vent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the heat would just go from the bottom floor and radiate all the way up through the rest of the floors if you open the registers. Wow. So we never slept in a heated room. Uh, none of us did. Unfortunately, I remember some of those stories personally myself. I uh, I grew up in Canada, in Ontario, Canada, which is uh, rather cold in the winter. And we lived as a, I lived as a young child in, in houses that probably weren't well insulated, didn't have central heat and air. And in one particular instance i remember those vents on the floor being so hot they would burn your feet yeah we must have had a lot of heat radiating up i would say a lot of it yes you have uh, as you've mentioned over 100 stories how did you go about assembling these did it take a long time to to put them into print or you say you have a photographic memory were you able to just sit down and get it done well i would have different times where i would have an inspiration to write a story I found myself with a little bit of time because I worked at a job where I would did a lot of traveling, and I traveled pretty much all over the world. Um, I had a boss who owned property down in the Florida Keys, and I spent a lot of time down there with him mm. as well. And so uh, I would take the time to sit down and write a story or two when I was down there because I had a lot of time on my hands. And sometimes when I was traveling back and forth, if someone else was driving, you know, I I could sit down and, and write the stories. I wrote them all freehand, and my wife typed them up. That's that's where you find some of the typos in the book, but we Bl- didn't blame it on her. them all. But there are a few, right. yeah. <laughs> but that's okay. Volume 2 won't have that. I'm, <laughs> I've got about uh, 90 stories now for a, a Volume 2 book, and uh, so I'm kind of at a at a lull right now on that. But. Wow. How long did it take you to, to complete this this uh, compilation? It was over a period of about 10 or 
or so years okay. of just compiling things. There were years at a time that I didn't write a word. I didn't have the uh, inspiration to do so. But then when I got to the point where I was retiring and I thought, you know, either I'm going to do this or I'm not. So then I really got more serious about it and sat down and started writing up some of the stories and some of the memories and things that uh, I thought would uh, bring back a lot of memories for a lot of people when they read the book. You know, my intention was to, to show people of different walks of life how to live their life to the uh, fullest by giving examples of how I live mine and, and to brighten one's day by reading a story or two that will uh, take them from their world into mine. Beautifully, beautifully put. You have the designation your friends and, and your acquaintances refer to you as Colonel, Colonel Block. Uh, is that uh, military or is it something else? Uh, I'm a Kentucky colonel as well. Uh-huh. <laughs> I work with West Point Military Academy. My my son went through there and graduated in 99, and I kind of stayed with their program for the longest time. And I go uh, over to uh, Indianapolis at Fort Benjamin Harrison and put on displays and things when we welcome the new plebes into uh, West Point each year. And Indiana puts in about 24 plebes uh, two dozen plebes each year. A lot of the states average around that as well. And uh, West Point can handle up to 1,200 new cadets each year, but they never do reach that maximum record. It's it's an amazing place if you've never been there, and it's very historical. But wow. uh, well, that's that's a fascinating uh, fascinating background into your history. You have uh, have have published this first book. You have another one in the works. Um, There is uh, possibly one story or two that you think might be the highlight of your book. What would that be? Oh, gee. Uh, They're they're all highlights, in in my opinion. Which one did you like writing the best? Uh, Well, I get a lot of feedback, actually, from a lot of people, and I do when I sell books or talk to people that actually have bought my book and have read it. Uh, I've ran into people that uh, said, well, I, I bought your book and I started to read it and I couldn't put it down. I read the whole thing in one night. Wow. And then I get feedback like, wow, I really, really enjoyed your book. It brought back a lot of memories of my own childhood. Even though I'm not even from an area close to where all this took place, it still brought back memories of my own. And I've got uh, feedback like, I, I hope you write another book, you know, that the people were really looking forward to that as well and so uh, there were a lot of stories that I did not put in the first book and uh, so that uh, would, it was would, would, would you call this recommended reading maybe for my grandkids uh, young as they might be oh absolutely it's easy reading for people of all ages like you say there's a lot of animal stories in there and right. kids are always fascinated with animals hmm. and, and they can learn a lot of things in there about what their capabilities are. People do not realize what their capabilities are when it comes to uh, uh, animals. I mean, uh, people can treat an animal as a pet or it can be a family member. And uh, it's very interesting. Uh, Well, take Germany, for instance. I've spent some time in Germany. And wherever you went, the people had their their pets with them, their dogs. And even if you went to a... uh, Tankestella, which is a, a gas station along the uh, Audubon, right. um, they would have 
feed stations outside for your animals. While you were there, you could get a meal, and your animal, your dog, would be well taken care of while you were there. They just plan on people having their pets with them as a family member. It's very interesting how they, they treat their their animals. That's a beautiful bit of insight. I had not uh, visited, I've not visited Germany. I've been into Europe and many of the countries, but Germany itself has not been on my uh, on my stop list, and I certainly would love to do that in the future. You have uh, written a wonderful book, uh, nostalgic in its viewpoint, not necessarily totally uh, autobiographical, although it does include autobiographical uh, observations. It's uh, more like a series of short stories that people can relate to on many levels, and is there an underlying message that you wanted to share when you finished your book? No moral to the stories? I mean, there there might... If people could only buy one book this month, they should buy mine, because it is a unique book in the way that it contains all those stories. And it's, like I say, it's very easy reading. Even a five-year-old can read it. It's uh, in plain, common-sense English. And there's no great big words that, gee, what does this mean or what does that mean? No, there's nothing like that in the book. And it's very entertaining, like I say. Uh, a lot of people, as you asked, what if there was any stories in there that I thought would be favorites, uh, not so much my favorites, but I get a lot of feedback on the uh, the car show blowout. And uh, also the uh, the bumper, the, the car bumper story, is, uh, which is a simple story and an easy reading story. And those are both humorous stories. And uh, the car bumper story is a prank, and where the other one is a, <laughs> a disaster at a car show. But <laughs> but it's all they're all humorous. That bumper story sounds interesting. What's that all about? Well. I was repairing a car. I had a 53 Chevrolet, and, and I put another front end, and I had this bumper left over, this front bumper. And then old cars like that was a giant bumper. So uh, a friend of mine and I, we decided we'd play a little prank. So we uh, loaded the bumper in the back of his pickup truck, and we went down to the local uh, creek where the people go on Fridays and Saturday nights. And they sit on the creek banks and they fish all night long with their lanterns and things. Uh-huh. And so we drove up onto the bridge there and got out of the truck and looked, and there's all the people sitting down there fishing and drinking their beer and having a good time. And and so we start this mock fight. We're smacking our fists together and shoving each other around and slapping on the truck and so forth and so on. And then as a, after a while, we, we grab the bumper and we take and heave it over the side of the bridge, and it makes a big splice in the water. And then I yell down there, well, I'll teach him to mess with my girlfriend. Then <laughs> we jump in the truck and peel out of there. And as we're going, we're watching, and everybody's grabbing their lanterns, and they're running for their cars. They don't want to be any part of whatever that was, you know. <laughs> and we're just laughing our silly heads off going down the road, just one of our silly pranks. <laughs> Did you ever get past the prank hood, or are you still a prankster? Oh, no, no, no. You never get past that. <laughs> That's good and to I know. I told him, I said, you know, I wonder if we should come back tomorrow morning and see if they're dragging the the, the creek for a body. <laughs> but we didn't. Fantastic. Well, people need a light read in this uh, current environment uh, when we're recording this. The title of the book, again, is Life as I Lived It, Small Town Country Living. And my author guest has been Richard W. Block. You can do a search online and find out more about what he's up to should the next book come out in the near future. Uh, Colonel Block, where can my listeners get a copy of this? 
Well, right now it's available in five countries, and also mm. it's on uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and Google. Super. Uh, just uh, oh, maybe a month ago, I was invited out to Las Vegas to the Caesar's Palace to do a pitch. And by a pitch, I mean not by baseball, but you pitch the book to movie producers right. to see if they're interested in making a movie out of the book. And, of course, the way I pitched my book is, well, you could compile all the stories and, and, and make a movie out of it, or you could have a television sitcom and use each story as an episode if you wanted to do something like that. Great idea. But they don't tell you what the results of that are until, you know, a year later. So. <laughs> It was an interesting process at any rate because you got to meet a lot of other authors and how and why they wrote their books and how they pitched them. And it was an interesting thing. I talked to one author, and uh, they ask you if you have a pen name. And, of course, I do not. And uh, I talked to one guy and, and one author, and he said that his pen name was, I forget, it was a woman's name. And this is a man. Right. And I said, why do you have a woman's name as your pen name. And he says, well, he says, I have discovered that women will buy more books written by women than they will buy a man. Mm -hmm. And he says, so I go by a woman's pen name so that my books sell more to women than they do men. Well, you can imagine what kind of interview that would be on my side. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But I thought that was very interesting, you know, of, Hmm. of how that he was marketing his book. And, uh, of course, he, he loved all the uh, uh, the things that you could download off the Internet, too, for just a few dollars rather than have to buy the, the book, you know, in paper content. Because a lot of people don't have a place to store a book or a lot of books to create a big library. I had a father-in-law who read paperback books, and he used to read three books a week. Wow. And he had a spare bedroom that you could not even get into for the stacks and stacks of paperback books. He had thousands and thousands of them in boxes and stacks and shelves and everything. I thought, oh my God, you know, why don't you (laughs) use these for for heat source or uh, trade them or sell them or do something with them? My gosh. Open a store, maybe. Open a store. That would be the ideal way for someone that's a book hound, I guess. Yes, that's for sure. Well, the book title... He had an inventory there. That's... That's for sure. Uh, the book title, again, is Life as I've Lived It, Small Town Country Living, and my author, Richard W. Block. Uh, Colonel Block, thank you for joining me today, and uh, hope to hear from you when the next one is released. And uh, best of luck with this one. Hope, uh, hope a weekly series comes out. I'd love to see it in video format as well. Well, Jay, it's been an adventure. <laughs> Absolutely, and continues. All right, sir. Good visiting with you. Uh-huh. For Bye-bye. I, for iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. When your focus is to lose weight or maintain your present weight, exercising effectively to burn the most calories is crucial. You want to give yourself every advantage to burn as many calories as possible. One good tip is to do your strength training exercises standing up so you can keep your heart rate up Another tip is to perform multi-joint exercises when you can. For example, as you're doing a forward lunge, add bicep curls while you're coming up from the lunge. Another example is to execute a wide squat. 
and as you're coming up from the squat, perform a shoulder press. By doing these multi-joint exercises, you're putting more demands on your body, keeping your heart rate up, and working more muscles at the same time. The goal is to burn the most calories during that workout. I'm Annette Hammond. To hear other fitness and weight loss tips, visit our website at AnnetteHammond.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled Culinary Adventures with Secret Recipes. That's the subtitle. The main title, My Travel Adventures and Secret Recipes. And joining me from Florida in the United States of America is Chef Wolfgang Hanau. Thank you, sir, for joining me today, sir. Hello, Jay. How are you? Excellent. You start uh, asking me questions. I'm ready. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm I'm uh, fascinated by your book. You're over 550 pages, and uh, for most people who would see this on the shelf, they would think, well, another recipe book. It's not really a recipe book, and unless you would uh, I- include a recipe for life, because your first chapter gives some fascinating insight. You were born in Prussia, and yet in your book you mention the importance of faith in your in your life. Uh, share with my listeners a little of your history where you were born, and uh, some other things about your life that maybe give you a foundation for your book. I'm very happy to be very um, uh, much uh, follower of Jesus Christ, who is my Lord, and um, I surrender everything what I do in obedience to Jesus Christ and ask Him to take charge of it. So I start off with my book, uh, describing when I was a child, and um, I love to sit on the one tree near our house, and I looked at the leaves, and they were breathing and bringing peace to me and harmony and happiness to my mind, and um, which transformed uh, my mind to renewing of my mind. There was uh, many times running as a boy, running through the fields of wheat and barley and rye in East Prussia, and Mama, my mother, was always watching and um, constantly concerned about happiness and health, both physically and spiritually. She would follow me carefully with her eyes as I ran into the sunshine, blue skies, and golden fields in front of us. And um, I couldn't think of anything more than being happy and enjoying the life as a child uh, right to my adulthood. And uh, throughout my life, as I mentioned before, Jesus Christ was and is always next to me. I surrendered to him in obedience, leaving all the consequences to him. And... uh, I believe also it's very important that we learn how to wait for things to happen and not being anxious. And um, I like to follow there the, the words of the um, uh, prophet Isaiah 64:4, as it says, God acts upon those who wait for him. This is one of my philosophies and my wisdoms in life I learned. It's a it's a beautiful philosophy for those uh, who are listening and maybe people of faith. This is uh, an inspiration by itself because you uh, were born, if I might, uh, might observe this, prior to World War II and uh, grew up as a child in East Prussia. Your mother was also uh, an accomplished individual in the music field. Is that correct? Yes, my mother was an opera singer, and so my father was also involved in the music. He was a conductor of the Philharmonic Orchestra in Tilsit, in East Prussia. And uh, besides, my mother was a very famous painter. She still was to the last um, uh, time where she lived and grew and lived in, in America, among others in Alaska and in Long Island, in New York, and in New Orleans. 
and in Palm Beach and in Palm Springs, where she visited me when I owned the restaurant there. And she had art exhibitions there, and she always had more artists than she really could handle. And I have in my own house, I have many of her paintings. And um, I enjoy the painting, and I like the, enjoy the music, in particular classical music, as I enjoy other painters. For instance, one of my good friends is Franz Hals, who is the famous Austrian painter who was in charge of um, uh, and uh, authorized to paint the Opera House in Vienna and the Lipizzana Horses. I have a whole collection of his paintings in my home, too. So my mother was uh, very artistically managed. She grew up in Germany, but she started in Italy and in Germany. And later on, she practiced her art in all over Europe and in America. And you grew up to have an interest or fascination with cooking and baking and became a world-class chef because you have worked and uh, practiced your craft in over 26 countries worldwide, including in the subtitle, Berlin, Paris, London, New York, Casablanca, Zurich. Where did that interest in cooking and being a chef come from? Okay, this is a description of a most beautiful life from my childhood to adult. The word beautiful means there's an exciting story and a tasty dish for everyone in this book of my reading and uh, travel adventures. Um, I can tell you how, unlike my book is uh, with similar books, it sets my recipes apart from other books as they are most beautiful dishes prepared and tasted traveling through 26 countries and uh, uh, provide only dishes which I particularly liked and which I particularly enjoyed eating with, uh, in, in other restaurants and resorts. And it not only elaborates on seafood or meats or any category of vegetarian or soups or baked goods, but all types of food. This is one more thing which is set to society from other cookbooks. Where did, where did you begin studying your skills as a chef? I studied uh, outside Munich in, in a little city called Starnberg. And it was um, after the war, after the Second World War, when there were very little uh, to do, very little to do, and very few jobs available. And there my mother met this uh, owner of this wonderful restaurant and, uh, and uh, bakery outside Munich in Starnberg. And I had the most wonderful relationship with these people. I was, like, I was brought up like a child in that family. The name was Pop, P-O-P-P, and he later on became the mayor of Munich. And uh, it was a wonderful life there. I went to school in Munich, culinary school. I graduated from the Culinary Academy in Munich. with a diploma of the city of Munich, which made me one of the three uh, most honored students in the city of Munich, and uh, which is still today one of my great references which I can give. You have, uh, you have mentioned in your title that you have secret recipes. Most chefs and bakers like to keep those close at hand. Why did you choose to share them with the world? Well, I tell you what it is. I believe that I want to share everything which I know and which I have learned in this world. For instance, I was uh, one of the most beautiful uh, life stories I have, uh, which was about uh, four or five years ago, way after Europe, when I um, struggled with the, um, uh, with the decision, should I want to have another job or should I want to give of myself and uh, help others of what I know? And God took care of me. He sent me to a place called Oasis. Oasis is a... Um, a um, agency for the homeless and the underprivileged here in West Palm Beach. 
And I started there as a culinary director and gave uh, cooking lessons to those who could not afford any other lessons or could not afford to go to school. They came from other countries, from Central America, South America, or wherever they came from. And I was able to teach what I knew. And therefore, this became the most valuable uh, source of information, the most valuable uh, place I ever worked at. This was at Oasis because I was uh, able to work what I enjoyed by cooking, at the same time giving of myself to helping others. A question that I have, because I have observed chefs and bakers and people in the industry, to me it's a very difficult, tiring existence to be a chef. Was that anything that you had to overcome, or how did you manage the energy needed to become an exceptional chef? Well, it started early in my age. My mother was an excellent chef. As a matter of fact, I write one story where she made every Sunday morning, she made something with like German apple pancakes. Right. And they were not fried, they were baked in an oven, they were wonderful. And they became so famous in our little village where we grew up that all the children automatically on Sunday would come to our house because they knew there was something which they really liked and enjoyed, and my mother loved to share with them. So I started cooking with my mother, and then my grandmother was also an established chef. Uh, she's not a chef as such, but uh, very uh, good history in cooking, too. Dishes were not only East Prussian dishes, but dishes from anywhere in the world, because she also grew up internationally. And um, so it was only natural for me to grow up and pursue this cooking anymore, and particularly that the opportunity, and I found the opportunity to travel throughout the world. And um, so I uh, traveled, I started after East Prussia, I traveled to Bavaria, which was out of necessity because the Russians conquered um, uh, East Prussia. And that's a story by itself because we were invaded there with these um, uh, Russians which came, actually were Cossacks, they called them Cossacks. Right. They had swords on their saddles and were rather wild-looking people. But anyway, so we escaped. Um, and being very uh, fortunate that the mayor of the big city of Tilsit, where my father was a conductor at the orchestra, by the way, he called my mother up and he said, there's a Red Cross uh, train coming to your little village, and I make him stop, and they will have four tickets. This was uh, my mother, the children, and our children, my grandmother, and they will take you into the inside of Germany so you can escape the Russians. So then, in other words, from East Prussia, I went to Bavaria, and then after I graduated from my apprenticeship in Munich, I went to Switzerland, to England, to France, to America, the Caribbean, the Canary Islands, to Africa, the Orient, Southern Europe, and back to the United States, living in California, Michigan, New York, and in Florida. Phenomenal. So this was part of my travel. And altogether, I traveled through 26 countries and so many different places and different cities. And matter of fact, the outside of my book, uh, reflects my travels with the skylines of many of the cities I lived in. The uh, recipes that you've included, is there a cultural recipe or a style of cooking besides the uh, uh, the European style of uh, classic uh, cooking? Is there a, a style or a type of cooking that you discovered that you were not aware of but you have come to love? Yeah, this is the Mexican cooking. I recently learned here in America. I love Mexican cuisine, and I have many Mexican recipes included in my cookbook. And now, more particular, my brother lives in Mexico, and I share many recipes with him, original recipes. And this is all my recipes. They come not only from different countries, but also from different chefs. 
and the original recipes as they are cooked in those countries. This again sets them aside from other uh, cookbooks because they might um, have restaurants which everybody knows and uh, not unusual combinations of, in particular I talk about herbs and spices which are used in many countries. Uh, totally different from other countries. For instance, if you go and live in Morocco, the Moroccan herbs is a whole uh, story by itself. And I was uh, fortunate enough to travel through the Sahara Desert, where I bought uh, at the um, Bedouin villages. They lived in tents in the Sahara Desert. Right. Uh, most fabulous uh, herbs, which you don't know even anywhere in the world. And so I used, I got used to those herbs and use them today in cooking even. Can there can these herbs that are a little bit unusual for the American taste, for example, or for maybe Great Britain, uh, those in different parts of the world, can they find them locally, or are they are there yeah. other substitutes? I, I, I made sure that all my recipes are very uncomplicated, and it should be my writing should take special tasks and special care to make uh, it a personal book, pleasantly ambling and that it should be fun to reading and to cook these recipes. They're very uncomplicated, and you should be able to get all of this somewhere in America uh, if, you, if you're willing to go and look for it. Uh, there's nothing which you cannot get in, this, in these recipes here in America. Well, your book is inspirational not only from a personal standpoint, because you have a fascinating history, but also from the, uh, the cooking and the chefing standpoint. How would you introduce this book to someone in a couple of sentences? How would you get them interested in uh, making this a part of their library? Okay, I would say... Let me think how I would best describe it in a, in a short, in a short say. Anyway, it is written by a chef, born and educated in East Prussia, to learn to love good cooking from an early age. It was only natural for me to go on to become a world-class chef. In my book, Travel Adventures and Secret Recipes, uh, I write about culinary adventures with secret recipes, sharing the secret recipe I learned over a decades-long career at some of the world's most exclusive restaurants, luxury hotels and resorts, as well as recipes for the reader's family and friends, like German warm potato salad, the Allenstein barbecue recipe, wow. Bernays sauce, rainforest acai berry cookies, Amstel light portobello gorgonzola burgers, golden apple cheddar pancakes, apple jam filled cookies and apricot glazed mushrooms over mixed baby greens. So besides sharing these recipes, my travel adventure secrets recipes serve as my memoir and includes stories about uh, camelback rides in the Sahara Desert, cruises on luxury ocean liners, and meeting with celebrities at culinary destinations, as well as simply escaping the ordinary routines of life. Besides your fascinating career and illustrious, you have some wonderful introductions from world-class chefs and uh, people who have been in management in some key key businesses. You have uh, just stated earlier in the interview that the most exciting thing that you have done with all of your accomplishments is what you're involved in now. Is that also correct? That's all correct. But now, at this time, I'm consulting, and I can be contacted anywhere from anywhere in the world to travel to any restaurant, to any luxury hotel or simple restaurant, set them up a menu, and work with them to prepare for an elaborate party. For instance, I received once an invitation from the King of Morocco hmm. to, uh, to cater a, a special uh, dinner 
for celebrities he had invited from all over Europe who flew specially in, and he asked me to cater this. And uh, I tried to be hands-on myself involved in this. I met the most fascinating people. As I can mention, I met um, Aristotle Onassis in my lifetime. I met with Maria Callas, the famous opera singer. Yes. I met with Sir Vincent Churchill in London. I met with Sir Montgomery of Alamea in Gstaad as a ski-jumping affair. So I met the most fascinating people, and I can be contacted through my publisher, uh, which is easily available, to travel anywhere in the world and cater, uh, make uh, fabulous feasts uh, to anybody's desire. Chef, I have a grandson who had an interest in becoming a chef at some point. Is it a difficult thing to achieve? How did you achieve, or how would they achieve what you have accomplished? It is very simple. You need some um, imagination and being creative how to go about it. Set up your mind that you want to travel, and you want to see the world, and you want to work as a chef and learn different things. This is what my ambition was. So what I did is I wrote simply to different newspapers and asked them to send me a copy of their newspaper, and I wrote to different advertising of hotels and restaurants and says, I'm a young chef willing to learn. I would like to come and work in your place. This was my first job I got at that time in Switzerland in a little town called Chinsnachbad, which was the hottest uh, sulfur spring terms in, in Switzerland and in Europe. And this is where I met many, many interesting people and many famous chefs. And I received other orders and other offers from, uh, from the Dorsters Hotel in London, from the Plaza Atenee in Paris, where people came and they loved what I was cooking. And... Uh, once you start the ball rolling, it rolls by itself. Give yourself a chance and do it. And I encourage anybody who is young and willing to travel and to learn to follow this example. If they have any questions, they can call me up and I tell them how to go about it. I would be very happy to help them. Fascinating. That's great advice, not only for those who are interested in the culinary field, but also probably any career. It, it has some wonderful foundation. Thank you again for sharing that. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Excellent. The title of the book, again, is My Travel Adventures and Secret Recipes. My guest has been Chef Wolfgang Hanau. Chef, where can my listeners get a, a, a copy of this? You mentioned iUniverse, and I think Amazon carries it as well, correct? Yeah. Well, Amazon right now carries it. Barnes & Noble carries it. It can be bought through my publisher, uh, iUniverse. Uh, and if you want, I can give his phone number. It's 800 Two eight eight four six seven seven, and uh, from myself personally too, uh, I'm available at my uh, uh, email or through my phone number, which is five six one eight three five three seven nine eight. And the reason it's secret is very simple. These recipes have never been published before. That's the first time I publish these recipes. That's why I call them secret because they're secret to anybody else, except to you if you buy the book. <laughs> uh, well, that's a good teaser. They, they, they sometimes refer to that as a cliffhanger, uh, something that will get people's interest and hopefully get them involved. Again, a fascinating book. It just covers a lot more than just secret recipes and culinary adventures. It does cover your life story as well, and a beautiful story it is. Uh, your adventures through Paris, uh, Berlin, London, New York, Casablanca, and 26 other major countries in the world that uh, should be fascinating to, to the reader. The title, again, is My Travel Adventures and Secret Recipes. My guest has been Chef Wolfgang Hanau. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. It was a pleasure. Thank My you so pleasure much. for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker.
iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.